0: 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskorik. So what was your aha moment that led you to start ERI?
1: Yeah, well, listen, Martin, thank you for having me on. It's an honor and privilege to be here today. And, you know, I was a serial entrepreneur. My, um, My father was a serial entrepreneur, so I grew up. uh, We're Armenian immigrants that came to America and our family. My grandfather, my father, and now my brother and myself have become serial entrepreneurs. I was a dot-comer back in 1998, the year Google was founded. And, uh, you know, even though 1998 is only a mere 24 years ago, it's, you know, it's almost prehistoric times when it comes to talking about the internet. Because when you talk about Google was founded in 98, we founded a company, my partners and I, Mike and and, uh, and Matt O'Brien, a company called uh, FinancialAid.com. And everybody said we had no chance of making it. By the way, I barely knew how to turn on a computer. But we had this idea in the stream to democratize uh, the student lending business, which was horribly broken at the time, and we got very lucky. Every VC under the on, on up on Silicon Valley threw us out of their office. They said we have no chance of making it ever, and we didn't understand the internet. By the way, they didn't understand the internet either. It was 1998, and we just kept going at it, and uh, and uh, we eventually.
0: And John, what happened in '99? I was working on Broadway Street for a PR company in San Francisco, and then that bloody .com exploded, oh, and I said, "Bye bye, back to Croatia." Right? So, what happened with your business?
1: Well, that's a it's a great that's a great part of the story. I'm glad you asked that, because not many people actually ask that. So, we put together as much money as we could ourselves, mortgaged our homes. Ask friends and family because every VC didn't wouldn't give us a dime. So we we bootstrapped this, and we go down and sublet a little office in San Diego, California, but we had no furniture and we had no equipment. And then what you, Martin, what you just said happened: the dot com boom. You know everything blew up, and so we bought servers and equipment and furniture from all the dot coms that were going bankrupt for pennies, literally pennies. We built our server room for pennies and we bought our desks. We had one desk we shared and looked at each other. We, you know, we just, we had a couple of computers all from the companies up in Silicon Valley in San Francisco that went bankrupt. And uh, and so we were like, the, uh, we, we just put it together with Scotch tape, with glue, with anything we could. We made the most of every penny we had. And um so the blow up was actually good for us because it helped us grow up. And uh and then and then we were one of these rare dot-coms, Martin. And again, anyone who doesn't give uh who doesn't have enough humility to give luck, luck and timing, uh its fair due in any success journey is not really being honest with themselves. So we were lucky. The world was ready for this product, but we were lucky it was the right time. And by the way, everything else was blowing up, but we started making a profit after we turned our website on, after about 90 days, 100 days or so. So we were one of these rare dot coms that made money quickly. And that got a lot of people's attention. Now, once we got their attention, we really didn't need their money anymore because we were making money, but we were very frugal with that money and that capital. Uh, because after we raised money from two doctors, a lawyer, and a gentleman in the food distribution and manufacturing business, it was really just four people plus our own family uh assets. Um, we just basically never looked back and never had to raise another dime. And it became one of the largest dot-com success stories in the in the in the internet world and we we did our goal we democratized the very very clunky and bad system of student lending that existed back in 98 and 99 and we sold our company in 2004
0: before we go to exit to exit strategy what you had that other people did not have
1: the historical student lending business was offline sally may and all the biggest lenders where, where everything was was just paper paper very clunky fax machines long lines at financial aid and student lo- student offices student loan offices at colleges and universities we said no 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 we're gonna put it all online now what worked for us we thought again this is where humility has to has to come into any equation we thought we were doing so good we were making money and people loved our website and we thought we were great great marketers. As we started interviewing our clients and getting to know them better and better, what they really told us they loved about the whole process is that they were very embarrassed about going to a student loan office when their parents had so many cars and boats or an extra vacation house, but their parents hadn't saved any money for to put them into college. So they were embarrassed. So why they enjoyed our website wasn't really because we were great marketers this was the beginning days of the internet they told us they loved the anonymity that our website and our and the and the online process back then things were still very anonymous and they didn't have to see other friends or their peers looking at them applying for a student loan so the anonymity part of this process again timing was perfect because it was still early days Things were fairly anonymous online and they were able to get a student loan sort of in an anonymous way without their peers seeing it. Of course, the banking entities and student lending entities and the federal government saw it, but their peers didn't see it. So that's why it took off and was such a big success in the first generation of dot coms.
0: any any challenges back then and and your personal transformation was there anything different back then than now in way in your way of thinking or living or
1: of course you know the startup world is always the most for me the most exciting startup the the most fun part of the business. The beginning part, going from zero to 10. 10 10 to 100 is a whole different business because then you're not just making. In the beginning, you're making, you're creating, you're innovating. That zero to 10 is the innovation part, is the making part. 10 to 100, such as the company we're going to talk about in a little while, like ERI, where we have over a thousand employees, then the making gets diminished because size becomes the enemy of innovation. Now then you become a manager. Now you have to manage the minutiae, manage the problems, and the real discipline, in terms of staying as an innovator staying as a creator staying as a as an entrepreneur that can go that can really scale a company is the discipline to minimize the managing part without losing the enterprise and focusing still on the innovating and in the making
0: and let's go into the skill sets what about skill sets they are completely different when you are CEO than when you were in startup phase
1: yeah, it's always different because startup phase everyone is' you're, you're both everyone is a CEO and everyone is the janitor. So you're just doing whatever it takes to to make the the, the the enterprise success Live the next day. you've got to live to the next day to continue to advance uh survive and and, and advance is really the, the the motive and when we started making a profit, at financialaid.com, we knew we were onto something. We knew we were onto something big, but that's when you have to then create systems. And that's when you have to create, uh, 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 knew that you were gonna grow and you had to actually put more, more people in more seats, the right people in the right seats to make sure that you could scale it and grow it so the dream could be realized. And we got very lucky, I mean, uh, Mike's wife came in, Julie, she was a great COO, and we brought in Kevin Dillon, who became my partner at ERI, and he became our marketing officer, and he did a great job and sales officer. So again, picking the right people, putting them in the right seats, if you make a make a mistake, you, you quickly fix that mistake and change that person. That's part of that whole startup life, and that's the most exciting part. The first, anywhere from first the one year to five years to me is the most fun. When you then scale the enterprise and, and you have to go to the next level, uh, that's when things become uh, even more challenging and more interesting. So you're always learning. Any great entrepreneur is always curious, always learning, and always staying humble enough and, and uh, to always realize that what he knew yesterday could change today. And that goes for today, Martin, in that science and technology with AI, predictive analytics, data analytics is constantly changing the game in every industry. So constantly being aware that just because I knew this yesterday to be right doesn't mean that can't change today and we might have to change how we do business to stay successful and stay ahead of our competition going forward. So always staying humble enough to realize don't get stuck in your own ego and your own methodologies and think that you got it right and now you can sit back and let the money roll and let the business roll forward. That never is the case That's the beginning of the end for any great entrepreneur or entrepreneur who thought they were great. While we were running financialaid.com, Kevin Dillon, who was my chief marketing officer back in 2002, introduced me to one of his better friends who he grew up with at high school, Aaron Blum. And Aaron, In 2002, we're starting a little recycling company of electronics down in San Diego. And he had an investor and he had a partner. So we became good friends. We all started going to a lot of sporting events together. And by the time we sold financialaid.com in late 2004, Aaron came to us then and said, hey, to me and Kevin and said, can you guys join me on my recycling company? And we said, why? He goes, listen, I wanna restructure it I need fresh money, fresh ideas, and I want you to do what you did at financialaid.com for the recycling business. And we looked at it and we saw, wait a second. Our aha moment is when we were studying the industry, we realized e-waste, hold on one second, Martin. <laughs> oh, I need to drink. Okay, we realized electronic waste was the fastest growing solid waste stream in the world. So it was a huge opportunity. It was the dark side of the technological revolution that nobody thought about. Nobody thought when they were creating great companies like Microsoft or Apple or Dell what was going to happen to the old electronics once people enjoyed using these for their business or their personal use. So we agreed. Aaron was on to something big, but we could help make it bigger. So we put in more money. We agreed. We put together a partnership with Aaron and my wife joined as well. So the four of us, became the new co-founders of what we then called ERI, Electronic Recyclers International. We shut down his San Diego unit and reopened it in April of 05 in Fresno, California. And we thought, okay, we're gonna have a nice California-based business. We're gonna clean up the environment. We're gonna keep electronics out of our landfills and all the hazardous material that's contained in electronics such as mercury, lead, cadmium, beryllium, arsenic, And we're also going to prevent these old electronics from being shipped to China or to Africa or to India and being inappropriately recycled there. We were going to do good and make a profit, but we learned along the way there was much more to this. We learned that this wasn't just a California problem. This was truly a worldwide problem. E-waste wasn't just the fastest growing solid waste stream in California or, by the way, in the United States. It was the fastest growing solid waste stream in the world. And to really land clients that were meaningful, like LG and Samsung, like Best Buy and Target, like Waste Management and Republic Services, like the city of New York and the city of LA, which all became our clients eventually, we had to have both a national and international footprint. And that's what we started building. We started building out our footprint around the United States. We started building in Massachusetts, and Indiana, and in New Jersey, and and North Carolina, and Dallas, Texas, and Denver, Colorado, and Seattle, Washington, beside Fresno, California. And before you knew it, we had eight locations covering every zip code, including Alaska and Hawaii. Then our clients came to us and said, wait, 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 wait. It's not enough that you're also just covering the United States. We want you to also handle our material everywhere we are. We're in Mumbai. We're in Shanghai. We're in Dubai. We're all over the world. You need to make sure you can handle us around the world. So we set up a network of partners all around the world that used our standards to recycle, responsibly recycle electronics. And then before you knew it, 20 years goes by, 17 years goes by. We're now 17 years later. And now we're the biggest company in the space in the United States and one of the top two or three companies in the world doing this. So it's been a hell of a journey. It's been a hell of a ride. We continue to learn. But here's the craziest statistic, Martin, two crazy statistics your listeners have to know, that e-waste isn't just the fastest growing solid waste stream in the world today. It's the fastest growing solid waste stream by an order of magnitude of four to five times the second fastest growing solid waste stream. So this is one of the greatest environmental challenges we have today. And when recycled responsibly, it's a zero waste, zero landfill, zero emission business. What does that mean? None of the products we recycle go to a landfill. None of it goes uh, to, uh, there's no emissions that come out of our company, which is wonderful. And all of the commodities that we produce, The shredded steel, the shredded plastic, the shredded gold, silver, lead, aluminum, copper, all go for beneficial reuse into new products. They go to smelters and then get put into new products. So last month, we recycled, give or take, 25 million pounds of electronics. And all that stayed out of landfills and went back into new airplanes, new hospitals, new infrastructure in China, new infrastructure in India, in the United States. And none of it goes to a landfill, so the environment wins. We've created over a thousand jobs. We're making a good profit. Everybody wins along the way, and that's the great part. When you responsible electronics the right way, it's a great industry. It's a great. It's a great way to treat the environment.
0: What can I learn from that story? That could be, for example, how did you do that specific footprint? Was it an organic growth? Right.
1: We built our footprint, our national footprint organically. We didn't buy any companies. We wanted to because we created a specific culture. Martin, when you're building a company, any company in any industry, culture is so important. Building the right culture with the right people is so important. So we decided we didn't want to since this industry, we were creating the industry. This industry didn't exist. We wanted to build all our locations from the ground up. That's number 1. Number 2, A very important statistic, unfortunately, in 2022, is that out of all the electronics that are used around the world, and and it's still the fastest growing solid waste stream in the world, according to the United Nations, only 17% of all electronics being used today are being responsibly recycled. So the opportunity for other entrepreneurs and the opportunity for all of us as citizens, as members of corporations or nonprofits or government entities to recycle more of our electronics when we're done using them is massive. We can all participate in this ecosystem and make the world a better and cleaner place. And that's a great message for your listeners, Martin. We can all do our bit and we can all do more to make the world a better and cleaner place. Another thing we learned along the way, Martin, is that this wasn't just about the environment. When we got in the business, that's all we thought we were focused on. Let's make the world cleaner uh, and, and let's clean up this problem of electronic waste. But what we started seeing along the way during this journey was, wait a second, we started seeing the birth of this company in Silicon Valley named Palantir. We started seeing LifeLock born in 2007 in uh, Arizona to protect people's personal privacy and data. And we started hearing this new word come up in our vernacular and our lexicon called cybersecurity. And then we started also seeing these big trucks drive around the United States and around the world called Shred It. They were shredding data on paper. And we started thinking to ourselves, wait a second, There's data in our old electronics. Who's making sure that our data goes away in our electronics? And there was really nobody focused on it. And we started focusing on that and messaging that in 2012. But again, Martin, when it comes to innovation and entrepreneurship, Every good idea is crazy until it's not. Every great idea is crazy until it's not. And people didn't want to listen to us, didn't want to listen to this whole issue of data in our in the old electronics and paying to destroy it. And we would tell them, wait a second, you're paying to destroy data on paper with Shreddit you got to pay somebody to shred the, the, the old data that's in your old electronics until Fortune Magazine wrote an article five years later in 2017 on our company. And they named the article Dead But Not Forgotten. It was the head writer for Fortune Magazine, a gentleman named Robert Hackett. And he said the last sentence of the article summed up the whole importance of his whole article. If this was what the last sentence says, it turns out that e-waste is not only an environmental hazard, but a cybersecurity one as well. And that's when people started listening to us. So about two years ago, Martin, we wrote a book. The book is called The Insecurity of Everything. And what I would like to offer to all of your great listeners who have taken the time to listen to today's wonderful podcast that you put out is that if they write to you or somehow or other interrelate with you whatever request you want to do and you forward us their names and addresses we will send them a free copy of this book I we didn't write this my partners and I wrote this book and we didn't write this book the insecurity of everything to be Shakespearean we didn't write it to make any money we wrote it as a public service so we could put all the information that we knew, about how dangerous our old electronics could be. And that's whether it's a cell phone, a tablet, a hard drive, a desktop, and by the way, now your EVs, now the wearables that you wear, now the nest in your home, and now the ring in your home, and all the things that are gathering information on our our families, on our friends, on our lifestyles, on our buying habits. Now we've taken all that information on all the data that these these instruments collect on you, and we're gonna show you the potential catastrophic results. It's all in this book. We'll send it to your listeners for free because we just wanna share the information that people just have to take better care of how they responsibly dispose of their old electronics. Whether they're sitting in Rome, Italy, or Shanghai, China, or Miami, Florida, we all have old electronics, that have data in them. And we all have to be really smart to protect our families and the organizations we work with on how to dispose of these old electronics, not only for the environment, but also to protect ourselves, families, and the great organizations we work with, because all the data that's in there, if it did get in the wrong people's hands, could be potentially catastrophic for everybody involved.
0: 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskorik.